Welcome to Legal Tips, a podcast series from the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association, also known as TIPS. As leaders in trial practice and issues of justice involving tort and insurance law, TIPS brings together plaintiffs, defense, corporate, and in-house counsel to tackle issues confronting the legal profession. Welcome to Legal Tips. I'm Randy Alamant, TIPS 2008-2009 Financial Officer and today's host. Legal Tips is designed to present you with a balanced discussion of thought-provoking issues and suggest creative approaches and solutions to problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. The fiscal soundness of any project is a component of its success. In today's episode, you will hear my co-host, Jill Mariani, interview Florida Trust and Estates Attorney Peggy Hoyt about how to adequately fund a pet trust that will provide for the care of your companion animals for the remainder of their lives. The title of this podcast is Funding a Pet Trust. Planning for the care of a companion animal is an emotional but a very important topic for a person to consider. If left to chance, after a person's death, companion animal may end up being taken to a shelter and euthanized. We are fortunate today to have an opportunity to speak with Peggy Hoyt, a prominent Florida trust and estates attorney of the law offices of Hoyt and Bryan. She has written several books, conducted workshops, and spoken extensively on the topic, including being interviewed on CNN Financial News. This is part two of the two-part series. In part one, Ms. Hoyt provided guidance in the formation of a pet trust for the continuing care of a companion animal. Today, Ms. Hoyt will discuss the funding of a pet trust. Welcome back, Peggy. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. An issue of particular importance is the funding of a pet trust. What can you suggest to our audience about finding adequate resources? Well, the sources of funding a pet trust are generally going to be the personal assets of the person who's creating the trust, a person that I call the trust maker. And this could be everything from their personal savings, their investments and retirement accounts, to even their home and its contents or other property that they might own. And these assets can be placed in a trust either during the lifetime of the trust maker as a direct transfer to the trust or after death through the use of a pour-over provision in a will or through other beneficiary designations like on life insurance policies or retirement plans. Um, And they could even include pay-on-death provisions for financial accounts. How can one make sure that there will be sufficient assets in the estate at the time of their death? Well, one way that people can make sure that there's going to be sufficient assets is to take the time to really calculate what type of assets, how much is going to be required to care for the pets that are the intended beneficiaries of the pet trust during that time. And if we discover that in that calculation our personal resources are not sufficient to cover the cost of that care, then we might consider the use of a life insurance policy naming the pet trust as the beneficiary as a way of creating wealth for the care of our pets. How does one calculate the cost of animal care? Well, there's a lot of different ways that you could calculate the cost of the care of the pet. One easy way is you can track the money that you spend today for caring for your pets and assume that this is going to be nearly typical for the ongoing care of your your pets in the event of your disability or death. 
Another way is just to approximate the care cost for the type of pet that you have and then extrapolate that amount over a number of years that you think your pet may live. And none of these are an exact science because, as always, emergencies and unexpected care costs can and will arise. So what I encourage people to do is guesstimate if they're going to do that on the high side if they can and then sometimes double or triple their typical care costs and sometimes we assume an exaggerated life expectancy for pets just to make sure that we're not going to run out of funds for the care of our pets. So, for example, one of my clients said that they wanted to leave the sum of $2,000 per pet for each year the pet was expected to live. Now, since we didn't know exactly which of their pets they might still have at that time or the age of those pets, we left instructions that said that we were to assume a life expectancy of 25 years for each cat that they owned at the time of their death and a life expectancy of 20 years for each dog that they might own at the time of their death. And then the trustee would be charged with the responsibility of figuring out that formula and having an appropriate amount of money set aside in the pet trust for the care of those pets. So a companion question to that is, what is a reasonable amount of money to transfer to the pet trust? Well, and I think that's a tricky question because reasonable is reasonable to whom? But I think a reasonable amount of money is an amount which bears a resemblance to the type of pets that are to be provided for, what the pet's relative ages are, and the type of care that the trust maker wants provided for those pets. So what might be reasonable to one person might be unreasonable to another person. Just between myself and my next-door neighbor, we take very different care of our animals so that I might spend X number of dollars and she might spend X plus Y number of dollars for the care of similar or even the same pets. So the issue that comes up here is the Leona Helmsley argument where some people have said that leaving $12 million for the care of a dog is excessive. But I think if you look at that $12 million in relation to the overall size of her estate and the type of care that she wanted for her pet, it might not be an unreasonable amount. And then another thing, just as an aside, I recently heard that uh, Simon Cowell of American Idol fame is rumored to be leaving his entire estate valued at more than $200 million to his poodles. What are some of the different ways to distribute funds from the trust? There's a number of different ways that people could come up with, and really there's probably an unlimited number of ways depending on an individual's preferences. But you could say, for example, I want, in the example we used earlier, $2,000 per year per pet for some period of time that the pets are expected to live. And then you could do that in a number of ways. You could say, make an outright distribution of that sum of money to the pet caregiver. So let's say that $20,000 got distributed to the pet caregiver and during the lifetime of those pets, it only costs $15,000 to care for the pet. In that case, the pet caregiver would have a so-called windfall for $5,000. On the other hand, if it cost that pet caregiver $25,000 to care for those pets, then there would have been actually a $5,000 shortfall. So that's one way of doing it, an outright distribution of a fixed sum of money. Another way that could be done is to have 
actual expenses reimbursed by the trust. So the pet caregiver has an expense for the pet. They submit those care costs to the trustee and the trustee reimburses the actual costs. So that's another way that could be done. Other things that people could consider could be bonuses from the trust for taking particularly good care of an animal for an extra long period of time. And then if there was an actual cost provision, including extraordinary or other costs that might not have been expected included in those disbursements. Now, is there any way that a client can prevent the pet trust from running out of funds before the companion animal dies? Well, the best way that they can prevent that is to do um, the calculations that we talked about exaggerate the life expectancies of their pets, exaggerate the actual care costs, and then make sure, I mean, really make more than sure that there's going to be enough money there to care for the pets. And that's where I really think that it can be important to use a life insurance policy to take care of the animals for the remainder of their lifetime. Because the one thing that would concern me is let's say that we left pets to an organization and we didn't leave sufficient funds for the care of those pets, my concern would be what would happen to those pets if the funds were dissipated and there were no additional funds to be forthcoming. So I think that you just really have to spend a lot of time thinking about the calculation of how much money it's going to take to care for your pets for their lifetime. Can you provide any guidance for the distribution of funds from the pet trust if the companion animal dies before the funds of the trust have been fully expended? Um, absolutely. Many clients say if my pets die prematurely or before all of the assets of the pet trust have been expended, generally they'll want those trust funds redirected either back to family members or in many cases to animal rescue organizations or other charitable organizations that provide benefits for animals. Peggy, what is the average bequest and what are some of the larger bequests that you have seen in your experience? Probably the average bequest for most of my clients per pet is somewhere between five and $10,000 for the care of the pets. And generally, these pets are being left to family members and they're saying, here's an additional $10,000 for the care of my pets. But I have had clients leave their entire estate, whatever the value of that estate might be, whether it's 200000 or $2 million. I even had one client who was buying a life insurance policy for a million dollars where the pet trust was going to be the beneficiary of that life insurance policy because he wanted to make more than sure that there was going to be sufficient funds to care for his pets. Now, are there specific organizations that stand ready to accept animals that survive their union companion? There are some that are willing to take on the responsibility for long-term or perpetual pet care. One area that's um, gotten a lot of attention recently is the university systems. And one example I can give is the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine. They say that they're selling peace of mind. And what they've done is establish what they call the perpetual care program. And what this does is requires a one-time enrollment fee and a bequest of $25,000 from the estate of the pet owner to the college. And the college even says that a life insurance policy could be used to meet this requirement. And they also believe that everybody wins. The pet wins, the pet owner wins, and also the college wins. And I think there are pros and cons to this particular um, plan, but I think for a person that does not have a, a readily available pet caregiver, somebody that they can trust to care for their pets, that's, this may be their best option. Are there any organizations that can provide 
a home for long-lived animals, such as horses and parrots, should they die. There are some that are out there, and um, they're few and far between, but you're starting to see more people get interested in this idea of perpetual care for pets. So they're cropping up on a pretty regular basis. One of the projects that I'm working on with a colleague now is to compile a directory of these long-term care organizations on a state-by-state basis and on a pet-by-pet basis, those that will take cats, those that will take dogs, those that will take horses or parrots. Um, I do have a client who runs a parrot facility, and for a donation, they are willing to provide lifetime care for parrots. And how does one go about selecting the right long-term care facility? Well, I think it's kind of like choosing a daycare center. You have to visit the facility, and you have to ask lots and lots and lots of questions. And things that people will want to know is how long the organization's been in existence. They'll want to ask for references. They'll want to know what their succession plan is if they can no longer operate their business. They'll want to know what kind of care they're willing to provide for the pet. And they'll want to know whether or not they will actually be providing the care for the pet or whether the pet will be placed in a foster home environment or even in a permanent home environment. And I note that in your book, All My Children Wear Fur Coats, How to Leave a Legacy for Your Pet, you do have a a very extensive checklist to evaluate the facilities. I do have a checklist in my book and also at my website, LegacyForYourPet.com. Peggy, in closing, do you have any other comments about providing necessary funding for the care of one's companion animals in a pet trust? I think just to reiterate the importance of calculating how much the pets are going to require for their long-term care, for making sure that there are trustees, that there are appropriate pet caregivers, that there's an appropriate animal care panel, and a trust protector if that would also be appropriate for that particular client. But really just thinking about all of the details and leaving nothing to chance. For more information about the Animal Law Committee and today's speaker and the committee's subcommittee on trust and estates, visit www.abanet.org forward slash tips forward slash animal. This is Randy again. I'm a strong advocate of funding our membership to develop solutions to make our legal system better. TIPS has long demonstrated its commitment to providing financial support to its general committees. More recently, in 2007, TIPS created the Enterprise Fund. Its four-member board has conferred monetary grants for innovative, collaborative, and well-developed proposals that advance the mission, goals, and objectives of TIPS. In fact, the underlying podcast, which is part of a series co-produced by the Animal Law Committee and ABA Publishing, and this internet radio broadcast are examples of projects funded by the Enterprise Fund. The Enterprise Fund also provided monies for a video being produced by the TIPS Committee on Diversity in the Profession called The Diversity Factor, capturing the competitive advantage that focuses on business models for diversity. Each year since 2005, the TIPS Leadership Academy receives 25 highly qualified and diverse candidates for training in leadership for which the section makes a significant financial commitment. Join TIPS and become a part of our exciting projects. Thanks for listening to this edition of Legal Tips. We hope you'll listen to the rest of this special series 
Brought to you by the Tort, Trial, and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association. Legal Tips is produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.